Greetings, this is Dr. Chris Bergwald, Director of Evangelization and Catechesis with the Catholic Diocese of Sioux Falls, and I am happy to introduce the following presentation from a Faith for Life seminar held in Sioux Falls on November 15, 2008, on the topic of the genius of woman, being a Catholic woman in the 21st century. The presenter is Dr. Elizabeth Mitchell. Dr. Mitchell is the Dean of Students and a teacher at Trinity Academy, a Catholic school near Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Dr. Mitchell did her doctoral work at the Pontifical University of the Holy Cross in Rome, where she was the first lay person to receive the doctorate in communications from that institution. Dr. Mitchell has also written studies for the National Catholic Women's Organization in Dow, specifically on the topic of St. Edith Stein and her work. The live recording of Dr. Mitchell's first presentation was unfortunately lost. She and I recorded a phone conversation with the same content. I hope you enjoy this presentation, and may God bless you. Sure. Thank you so much, Chris. Let's start with a prayer that was a favorite of St. Edith Stein's. It's the prayer of St. Nicholas of Fluet. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. O Lord God, will to give me all that leads me to you. O Lord God, take away from me all that diverts me from you. O Lord God, take me also from myself and give me completely to yourself. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, when I had the grace of attending the canonization of St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross in Rome on October 11th, 1998, I never really envisioned the incredible impact which this new and at the time relatively unknown saint would have upon my own life and my own future. I was in Rome studying for my doctoral degree in church communications, as Chris mentioned, and was blessed to attend many canonizations in the Holy City. And the canonization of Edith Stein was a, a very, very important moment for the church. I'll just read for you um, our description of that day in Rome, and then an excerpt from the homily that Pope John Paul II preached when he proclaimed the words of canonization for Edith Stein. And I take the description from the study guide that I wrote on Edith Stein, which is entitled, Edith Stein, Seeker of Truth. On a bright October morning in Rome, the faithful sat hushed in St. Peter's Square, his Holiness, Pope John Paul II, was about to pronounce the words of canonization for a remarkable witness to the faith, a modern saint, a convert from Judaism, a woman, and a martyr. She had been known in religious life as Sister Teresa Benedicta a Cruce, literally, Teresa blessed by the cross. She made her mark in the secular world as Edith Stein, a brilliant German philosopher, teacher, and lecturer. She completed her years as a cloistered Carmelite with a heart consecrated to Christ crucified, and she died in the death camps of Birkenau Auschwitz, a living witness to the truth which had so defined her life's journey of faith. When Pope John Paul II pronounced the words of canonization for Stein on October 11, 1998, entering her into the list of saints in heaven, he commented on her particular significance for the modern world, a world which he phrased as being in search of the truth. John Paul said, For a long time, Edith Stein was a seeker. 
Her mind never tired of searching, and her heart always yearned for hope. Eventually, she was rewarded. She was seized by the truth. Then she discovered that truth had a name, Jesus Christ. From that moment on, the incarnate word was her one and all. Looking back as a Carmelite on this period of her life, she wrote to a Benedictine nun, Whoever seeks the truth is seeking God, whether consciously or unconsciously. This woman had to face the challenges of such a radically changing century as our own. Her example is an example for all of us. And so I think what Pope John Paul II really captures there is this sense that Edith Stein is a modern saint for our time. After she was canonized by John Paul II, he then gave her an additional honor of naming her a co-patroness of Europe. And she holds that honor with St. Bridget of Sweden and St. Catherine of Siena. It's an honor which I think she's taking extremely seriously if you think about the fact that just a few years ago, World Youth Day was brought to Cologne, Germany, which is the actual city in which Edith Stein entered the convent. Stein was born in Germany in 1891 to a Jewish family in the town of Breslau. And if you got on a train and went to Breslau today, you would actually go to Poland, and the town's name is Wroclaw. The borders were redefined after World War II, and Stein's uh, hometown of Breslau, Germany, is now in present-day Poland. She was extremely bright. In fact, she demanded to go to kindergarten the minute she was the correct age. Her birthday fell uh, mid-year in the academic calendar, and she got up that morning and said, I am now eligible for kindergarten, and please enroll me. And she caught up, and she led the class throughout her elementary school years, her middle school years, and then her high school and university years. She always was then first in her class. She had sorrow in her childhood. Her father died uh, when she was only two. And it was an interesting moment in her life because that morning her father left for work, as he would have done uh, so many mornings as a routine. And Stein was in her mother's arms on the front step and gave her dad a kiss and he went down the path, and she called him back. She, in her sensitive heart, had some sort of premonition, even at that young age, that it was her last time on earth with him, and she called him back and gave him one last kiss, and he actually died of heat stroke that day. He was in the lumber business, and he was found face down on a path uh, near one of the lumber yards. Stein was then raised by her widowed mother, Frau Stein, and Frau Stein is quite a woman, um, she's not known to the world, except that Stein has become known to us. And she took over the family lumber business. So she was a female business owner in the uh, early 1900s. And she ran the family, a large family, with uh, great dedication. Stein, as one of the younger uh, siblings in this family, went on a visit when she was 14 years old to visit an older sister, and she had an older sister who was married and had just had a second child, and Stein was sent to be a mother's helper. And the interesting and sad part of this visit is that that home had no faith. The older sister and older brother-in-law did not practice the Jewish tradition, did not practice any faith tradition, and Stein became an atheist uh, during her time in that household. She said she preferred the solidity or the stability of unbelief 
to the confines of a Jewish religion she didn't feel was her inner calling. And when she becomes an atheist at age 14, this is the beginning of her slow and painful search for the truth. It's an heroic search for the truth, and she uh, gives up prayer and begins an intellectual search for God. Because she's so talented academically, she's nourished in her intellect. She studies psychology, and then, not satisfied, she turns in her quest for the truth to philosophy, and she wants to find the answers to the meaning of life in philosophy. She studies at the University of Breslau, and then she makes a transfer to the University of Göttingen in Germany. And this is the hub at the time in the German philosophical world of the phenomenological movement. And Professor Edmund Husserl is the founder of this movement, and he is her main professor. It's quite a place to be in quite an era, and Stein soaks in her surroundings. But internally, she's struggling because she has not come back to a solidity of truth. And she begins to fall into a bit of an intellectual depression. And she says, from her own writings in Life in a Jewish Family, bit by bit, I worked myself into a real state of despair. It was the first time in my life that I had ever confronted anything that I couldn't master by sheer force of will. Before this, I had always prided myself on having a head that was thicker than the toughest wall, but I had made my head sore from running into this one, and the stubborn wall wouldn't give. It reached a point where life seemed unbearable, she writes. I couldn't cross the street without hoping to be run over, or go hiking without wanting to fall, so that I wouldn't have to come back alive. Nobody had the least idea of what was going on inside me. So she's in this desperate search, and the amazing thing that happens to her as she searches the answers of philosophy is that her intellect is fed in philosophy, but her spirit is fed more powerfully by meeting Christians. She meets Christian philosophers who are studying in this Gottingen circle, and their vibrant witness of their Christian life has a deep and definite impact on Stein. And she's amazed at what it is that makes these intellectual equals tick internally. It's something that Stein doesn't have. And she talks about the fact that her philosophical discipline, phenomenology, has invited her to look and examine carefully all of the experiences that she encounters. And she applies the philosophical questioning to the phenomenon of Christianity. She says, this was my first encounter with this hitherto totally unknown world. It did not lead me as yet to the faith, but it did open for me a region of phenomena, which I could then no longer bypass blindly. With good reason, we were repeatedly enjoined to observe all things without prejudice, to discard all possible blinders. The barriers of rationalistic prejudices with which I had unwittingly grown up, and the world of faith, which had been hitherto shut away from me, unfolded before me. Persons with whom I associated daily, whom I esteemed and admired, lived in it. At the least, they deserved my giving it some serious reflection. For the time being, I did not embark on a systematic investigation of the questions of faith. I was far too busy with other matters. I was content to accept without resistance the stimuli coming from my surroundings. And so almost without noticing it, 
became gradually transformed. So she talks about this transformation that's going on within her. And she hasn't become a Christian by any means at this point, but she's begun to say that the Christians she knows add up as people. She has then one or two very profound moments where she again encounters the Christian witness of a faithful individual. One day she's in Frankfurt, and she's visiting the Frankfurt Cathedral. And she's visiting this almost as one would visit a museum. She hasn't gone with any faith intention. And a German housewife, Stein tells us later, came in to stop and pray. Stein was struck by the concept that this woman, during her busy day of shopping, would come in as if she were visiting a person, speaking in this empty, Stein would say, cathedral, as if she had a friend there. And Stein later wrote, We stopped in at the cathedral for a few minutes, and while we looked around in respectful silence, a woman carrying a market basket came in and knelt down in one of the pews to pray briefly. This was something entirely new to me. To the synagogues or to the Protestant churches which I had visited, one went only for services. But here was someone interrupting her everyday shopping errands to come into this church, although no other person was in it, as though she were here for an intimate conversation. I could never forget that. Stein then has another encounter that's even stronger than this first. She makes a visit to the home of a philosopher friend, and she had friends in the spa town of Badburg Sauburn, Germany. And her hosts go out for the evening, and they invite Stein to, which is a gift for Stein, the best you could give her, to enjoy any book in their library while they're gone. And as Stein tells it, at random, she chose the book The Life of St. Teresa of Avila, the autobiography of that wonderful Carmelite mystical saint. And Stein is struck by the book and by the story of this saint's life, and she reads the book cover to cover through the night with her intellect racing and her spirit being moved. And as the story goes, she closed the book in the morning, read through, and she says with conviction, this is the truth. And that encounter with Teresa of Avila is the end of her search for the truth. Her search and journey have found their end, and the end is the Catholic faith. And not only does Stein desire now to become a baptized Catholic, she wants to become a Carmelite nun. And we hearken now in our mind to the impulsive young kindergartner who demanded to enroll in school the moment she was eligible. That morning, when Stein closed the book and said, this is the truth, she walks down the street to the parish church and registers for formation classes, and she begins her catechesis in the faith that very day. She is baptized into the Catholic faith in 1922 at the age of 31 years. However, her dream to become a Carmelite, which would be the fulfillment of this conversion, has to be put on hold. She's asked by her spiritual direction, director to get her feet wet in the faith, to live some years as a Catholic layperson before she would become a Carmelite. And it's really a gift to all of us in the church because Stein spends 10 years teaching and lecturing as a Catholic throughout Germany. And she, in this, in this period of her life, lectures most particularly uh, on her profound understanding of the vocation of woman and the importance of education, both as gifts which must be shared with the nation. 
She writes works on the ethos of the professional woman, on the philosophy of psychology and the humanities, on questions of education. Some of her most important works now found in Essays on Woman are uh, done this, at this time of her life as lectures all over the map. Uh, she's in Austria. She's in Paris. She's in Germany. She is on the radio. She's lecturing to women's groups. She's lecturing in lecture halls. And she doesn't yet know what the ultimate plan that God has for her is. And she says, very humbly, she has this catchphrase in her life, and it's that she lived life at the hand of the Lord. And living at the hand of the Lord for Stein means to simply be at the Lord's beck and call. And almost the, the plaything, as Therese of the child Jesus was, of the child Jesus. And Stein says in this time, what lay outside my plans for myself lay within God's plans for me. The more this kind of thing happens to me, the stronger my conviction that looked at from God's point of view, there are no coincidences. Rather, down to the last detail, my whole life has been marked by divine providence. So divine providence has its way, and there's a very ironic, almost, reason why Stein is able to become a Carmelite, this desire she's had now for 10 years, and the reason is the Nazi persecution. In 1933, Stein is uh, released from her teaching position at the university due to anti-Semitic laws. She can no longer professionally hold a position in Hitler's Germany. And ironically, Hitler is allowing Stein now to enter the Carmel because her spiritual director realizes she has no more uh, usefulness in the world not being able to hold a professional position, the door is open for her to enter the Carmelites. And Stein travels to Cologne, Germany, where she enters the Carmelite Monastery. And it's when she enters the Carmel that she takes the name Sister Teresa Benedicta a Cruce. And that literally is Teresa, blessed by the cross. The presence of the cross is a very significant part of Stein's life from the outset of her vocation. She's had this painful search for the truth. She's persevered and found the truth of the Catholic faith. But the pain within her family at her decision to enter a cloistered religious order after having become a Catholic, two extremely radical decisions for her Jewish relatives, uh, places the cross very heavy upon Stein. In particular, Stein's decision is painful for her mother, her mother really can't grasp what seems to be an abandonment of the family and even her identity. And to keep in historical context, this is a time when the Jewish people are suffering as a whole. And there are lots of conversions of convenience, people who are becoming Christians in order to have more safety from the Nazi persecutions. Stein's is a true conversion, but it does not uh, stop talk within the family that possibly Stein is acting in a cowardly fashion. Stein's mother severs communication with Stein. Stein had a um, uh, tradition of writing weekly letters with her mother. And when Stein enters the convent, she asks for permission to keep these letters going. But her mother breaks the correspondence. And I'll just quote from the book Meet Edith Stein by Cynthia Kavnar, a wonderful book I highly recommend. And she writes, the only personal request Edith made when entering Carmel was that she be allowed to write to her mother weekly, a mutual correspondence that the two had practiced faithfully for years. The prioress agreed 
and each week Stein's letter dutifully went off. But for the first few years, August, Frau Stein, never replied. Rosa, Stein's sister, answered in her stead, keeping Edith abreast of family news. From Rosa and others, Edith learned that there was, quote, much bitterness in her mother. It makes me sad, Edith wrote to her sister Erna, without elaborating, to see what characters she has thought up, not only about the faith and about life in our order, but also about my personal motives. And in these words, Stein was really alluding to the climate of anti-Semitism that existed in pre-war Germany. Interestingly, this chilly relationship with her mother sees a warming up over time. And uh, the cross is lifted in a very significant way uh, in her relationship with her mother. And I'll just read again from Cynthia Kavanagh. On Easter Sunday, 1935, Edith made her profession of temporary vows. It would be another three years, according to the rule of the order, before she would make her final vows, which would be permanent. According to custom, the ceremony took place privately, with only her fellow nuns in attendance. Not long after, Edith wrote to her mother to describe the occasion. To her amazement, August wrote back, offering her best wishes. There was no explanation for her change of attitude. After that, all Rosa's letters from home contained a few lines from her mother. So Stein then has renewed communication with her mother and is able to share the particulars of her religious life. But the true union between the two comes when Edith's mother passes away. On September 14, 1936, the Feast of the Exaltation of the Cross, the nuns of the Cologne Carmel gathered at dawn for their yearly renewal of vows. After the ceremony, Edith told one of the sisters what she had experienced as she waited to make her recommitment. My mother was beside me, she said. I felt her presence quite distinctly. In fact, a telegram later that day informed Edith that her mother had died. The time of death coincided with Edith's renewal of vows. So it seems that Frau Stein understood in the light of eternity what she had not perceived on earth, that her daughter Edith had found the true faith and had given up everything for it. And that is a true blessing and a strengthening of Stein in the cross that she had borne. And she needs the strengthening because the Nazi persecution is going to begin to rage in full force, and the hand of the persecution is going to come very personally upon Stein. There is a famous date in uh, the history of the Nazis, uh, November 9th, 1938. It's known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. And on that date, throughout Germany, businesses and synagogues were raided, looted, and it really became impossible to publicly be uh, of the Jewish faith. And so Stein has to be transferred for safety out of Cologne, Germany, and they find her a place in Act Holland. There's another Carmel that's willing to take her in, and she's transferred by car on December 31st, 1938. So just over a month later, Stein has to leave the country. She writes a letter just before her move, and it really shows, again, this understanding of living at the hand of the Lord, trusting in God's will. She entrusts her own future to the Lord, but she has to entrust the future of her beloved family, who she's leaving now in Germany, to their what fate they may have. She writes just a week or two before she's transferred to a, an Ursuline mother superior that she knows. Dear Reverend Mother, 
I must tell you that I already brought my religious name with me into the house as a postulant. I received it exactly as I requested it. By the cross, I understood the destiny of God's people, which even at that time began to announce itself. I thought that those who recognized it as the cross of Christ had to take it upon themselves in the name of all. Certainly today I know more of what it means to be wedded to the Lord in the sign of the cross. Of course, one can never comprehend it, for it is a mystery. And then Stein gives us in this letter an update on where her family has been spread. My brother Arno left for the United States on October 14th, just in the nick of time. His oldest son, Wolfgang, was in a concentration camp until a few days ago, but now will probably be able to follow his father soon. My brother-in-law, Hans Bieberstein, has been over in the United States for several months, seeking information concerning job opportunities. He has now received permission to remain there and to have his wife and children join him immediately. He has already obtained a teaching position at a university, and in fact, this was the postgraduate medical school at Columbia University. The Hamburg relatives, the Gordons, these are the relatives where Stein was sent as the mother's helper, are getting ready for their departure to join their son in Columbia, South America. One daughter is going to Norway. My sisters in Breslau, Stein's hometown, are the worst off. My hope is that the Biebersteins, that is my brother-in-law and my sister Erna, will soon be able to get permission for them to follow. And then we remember that Stein was an academic and she had been doing intellectual work and publications from Carmel. And she says, I do not yet know what will happen to my pending publication. This is her work, Finite and Eternal Being, her seminal philosophical work. Should it become possible, after all, it would be my farewell gift to Germany. Our Reverend Mother has asked our sisters in Act Holland to receive me. Today their loving acceptance arrived. If it is possible to get all the necessary papers together in time, we would like to make the transfer even before December 31st. These are the facts. I commend myself to your prayers for the next weeks and months. So Stein has no illusions really about what may happen to her family. Her family has relocated, and, and historically we know that they relocated to the United States and to South America. And she is now relocating to Holland. She is transferred safely on New Year's Eve 1938 by car to the Carmel in Act, Holland. And she has a very interesting request. Anyone who is being spirited out of a country by night, usually doesn't ask to make any extra stops, but Stein does ask to make one mo momentary stop. She asks to stop in Cologne, in the city of Cologne where she's leaving, and pray at the Church of Mary, Queen of Peace. This is an ancient devotional shrine to our Blessed Mother. Very significantly, Stein stops and she prays at this church. We don't know what she prayed, but she then gets back in the car and they safely get to act. During the war, however, as the years proceed, the Carmel that Stein left is bombed to destruction. And after the war, the Carmelite order has to be refounded in Cologne. And they choose the location of the Church of Mary, Queen of Peace. And if you or join, or excuse me, if you visit the Carmel now in Cologne, that is the location that you go to. That church where Stein stopped to pray is where her, her order now resides. So I think Stein's intercession had a great deal to do with that transfer of her order. Stein now has a lot of new challenges, and we think about the cross following her. 
she has to learn a new language, Dutch. She has to learn to love a new religious family. Her new family, as it were, is this cologne and is this this caramel and act. She's able to continue her philosophic and her religious writings. And there are some famous titles by Edith Stein that you may think of, um, and they come from this period of her life. One is Finite and Eternal Being. And this is her great philosophical work, which explores a confrontation between Thomistic phenomenology and phenomenology, phenomenological movement of philosophy. And she has a real interface between the two, asking questions and seeing uh, how both philosophical threads can correspond. She writes a work called The Science of the Cross, and this is an analysis of the life and works of St. John of the Cross, and she was asked by her order to write this for the 400th anniversary of the death of John of the Cross, and it's a wonderful understanding of John's mystical theology of the cross, the science being the lived experience of the cross. She also writes her possibly most famous work entitled Life in a Jewish Family. She began this work in Cologne as a biography of her mother, but it becomes a heavily autobiographical work as she writes it. The purpose that she had in writing it was to present an authentic and beautiful portrait of Jewish family life in a time of great persecution. Interestingly, it was too dangerous because of its topic to carry with her as she fled Cologne, and she leaves it in Cologne. They bury it. They dig it up. They eventually have a student friend who is able to bring it to her by car, and he puts it in the back seat of his car, and he is actually stopped by the Nazis and questioned about what this text is in the back seat of his car, and he says it's his doctoral dissertation, and so they don't ever examine it. It would have been confiscated, and certainly there could have been heavy punishment for both the order that housed the work and Stein as the authoress. It's a rich autobiographical work. It's a wonderful read, and it gives a glimpse into the person of Edith Stein. Interestingly enough, it's never completed. It will lay open on her desk on the day she was arrested. And you have the understanding as you see that image of life in a Jewish family, Stein's autobiographical work open and unfinished on her desk that she is going to complete the work with her own life, and ultimately the last chapter will be written with her death, with her martyrdom. Stein's arrest comes in a very significant moment for the Catholic Church in the Netherlands. On Sunday, July 26, 1942, the Catholic bishops of the Netherlands speak out with one voice against the deportation of the Jews, There is a joint letter of protest signed by all the bishops, and it's read by every priest in every pulpit at every Sunday Mass throughout the region on this Sunday, a very heroic stance taken by the Catholic Church in the Netherlands. The response by the Nazis is equally strong. There is a roundup of all converts to Christianity from Judaism on August 2nd. And Stein and her sister Rosa, Rosa had actually by this time also converted and was living as an intern at the same convent. They are arrested. The arrest becomes particularly anti-Catholic over the next hours. It was 
clarified that only the Catholic bishops had challenged the authority of the Nazis, that the Protestant ministers had not read this letter of protest. And those Christians, converts from Judaism, who are of Protestant faiths are released, and the Catholics are still held under arrest. So Stein is physically removed from the Carmel effect. The Nazi guards come for her. She has moments, really, to gather her belongings, and she's brought out into the street. There's a crowd that has gathered because this is such an unusual event to have an arrest at a convent. And the crowd tells us later that Stein turned to her sister, and she publicly is recorded as having said, Come, Rosa, we go for our people. These words are a real testament to her conviction that she had been called very personally to offer her life for the entire Jewish people, for their sufferings at this time. And it's actually a belief that she expresses not only in this very public statement to her sister, but just a few years earlier in a letter which she wrote. She wrote, I trust in the Lord's having accepted my life for all of them. I keep having to think of Queen Esther of the Old Testament, who was taken from among her people precisely that she might represent them before the king. I am a very poor and powerless little Esther, but the king who chose me is infinitely great and merciful. That is such a great comfort. And her identification with Queen Esther is a very profound theme in Stein's life, and she sees herself here in that role of pleading for her people before the king. She also expressed her desire to offer her life completely to the Lord as a holocaustum. And this is years before the term is used to denote this terrible suffering that comes against the Jewish people in World War II. She formally asks permission in a letter to her superior at the Ex Carmel in 1939. Dear Mother, please will your reverence allow me to offer myself to the heart of Jesus as a sacrifice of propitiation for true peace, that the domain of the Antichrist may collapse, if possible, without a new world war, and that a new order may be established. I would like my request granted this very day, because it is the twelfth hour. I know that I am nothing, but Jesus desires it, and surely he will call many others to do likewise in these days. So Stein has asked permission, and interiorly she's very ready for what's ahead. Stein and her sister are transported to the Auschwitz concentration camp. And I'll read you some of the details of the transport to give you a sense of what took place. During the days and nights of August 6th to 7th, the transport left Hochhallen Station from Westerbork camp. It was the first Friday in the remembrance of the Feast of the Sacred Heart. It is recorded that the train carried 987 souls, among which were 120 baptized Jews. I was told by the director of the Auschwitz-Birkenau Museum that when the train arrived on August 9th, 559 persons dismounted. If the original figure of 987 passengers is correct, it can only mean that either 426 persons were discharged elsewhere, which is highly unlikely since the trains went directly to Auschwitz, or that they perished during the terrible two-day journey on the train. They were divided into two groups, 264 persons in one group, Edith and Rosa among them, 
were gassed and burned in a pit that very day. They never entered the camp. They had walked about 15 minutes through a grove where they were told to disrobe and leave their things. They were brought to a white cottage, formerly a farmer's home, where the doors and windows were boarded up for the gassing with Cyclone B. Her labors over, she climbed the mountain to the top. With Christ, she was nailed to the cross. As she comes to this end of her life in Auschwitz, in this white farmhouse, which is being used for these ga- the gassings of the people before Auschwitz proper is built, Stein has another very, very telling statement. Her last known words are truly significant. They were spoken from the deportation cars, this deportation that you hear of where so many died as they moved over the two-day journey to Auschwitz. Stein was traveling back across many of the places of her life. She traveled through the town of Schifferstadt, Germany, which was near the town of Speyer, where she lived when she taught for eight years after her conversion. The train actually was shortly to pass again through her own hometown of Breslau, now Wroclaw, Poland. Stein recognized the station master when she passed through Schifferstadt, Germany. During that period of lecturing and teaching from Speyer, she would have used the train in Schifferstadt countless times. And she says to him, Send my greetings to the sisters of the Benedictine convent in Spire. Tell them Edith Stein was here, and tell them we are heading east. Stein was killed in the gas chambers of the Auschwitz concentration camp on August 9, 1942, the day which is now celebrated as her feast on the church calendar. She was gassed by the Nazis in a small farmhouse at the edge of what grew to be the Auschwitz concentration camp as we know it. And in fact, a white stone from that farmhouse is now kept in the crypt of the Carmelite convent church in Cologne, Mary, Queen of Peace. Stein's last words, we are heading east, are left to us as a testament to her ultimate hope in Christ and the resurrection, even in the darkest of times in which she lived and died. They're a testament to her profound faith and her hope in the risen Christ amidst the horrors of her situation and fate. And when she says we are heading east, the east is the term being used for all of the unknown horrors of those who are transported. It's their destination. She knows, however, she is ultimately going beyond the east the east of the resurrection. Stein's conversion process was a very slow and painful search for the truth and an embrace of the cross. In fact, in her later years, Stein described the dark night of searching for truth in the field of psychology and philosophy throughout her intellect in those she knew, not as an unknowing search for God. She says, he who seeks the truth seeks God, whether he realizes it or not. She walked through the journey of a philosopher, a convite, a convert, a teacher, a Carmelite, and ultimately a martyr. And I'll read for you what the Holy Father hoped for her in his canonization mass for her in 1998. He wrote, throughout her life, as she grew in the knowledge of God, worshiping him in spirit and truth, she experienced ever more clearly her specific vocation to ascend the cross with Christ, 
to embrace it with serenity and trust, to love it by following in the footsteps of her beloved spouse. And the Holy Father ends, St. Teresa Benedicta of the Cross is offered to us today as a model to inspire us and a protectress to call upon. We give thanks to God for this gift. May this new saint be an example to us in our commitment to serve freedom and in our search for the truth. Thank you.